0: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining Real People OC. I am your host, Kimberly Martin, and you. um, I'm really happy that you join me each and every Thursdays from four to five. I've been doing this for almost five years. Can you believe that? I I didn't think I could stick with anything that long, but managed to stick with motherhood and uh, marriage for gosh, what seems like eons. (laughs) But anyway, um, today, if you've been joining us this last month, the month of January, we have been really researching and learning about human trafficking. It's Human Trafficking Month, January, um, by proclamation of our President of the United States, Barack Obama. And today is part four in that series. And we are going to be joined by Dan Varon. He is the Deputy District Attorney of the Orange County Office, the District Attorney's Office. And he is within the unit of the Human Exploitation and Trafficking Unit. And they are they work to prosecute uh, through pimping, pandering, and all human trafficking here in Orange County. And then I'm also pleased to be joined and to have done this whole series with uh, Dr. Sandra Morgan, who is the Executive Director of the Global Center for Women and Justice.
1: So thank you both for coming today. Thank you, Kimberly. I've enjoyed the entire month. It's so terrific to get this out here from this platform.
2: And it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes. So, so... Uh, Dan Barron, you are part four in our series, and we have, um, we've learned a lot about what's going on in Orange County, but tell me a little bit about what it is that you do and how you represent this issue in Orange
2: County. Uh, well, we prosecute pimps, panderers, and human traffickers to the best of our ability to. we have uh, Our unit started officially in April of 2013, and since that time, we've steadily grown uh, to help combat the problem. Uh, the district attorney has given us a lot of resources to fight the problem. Uh, so we currently have three felony prosecutors who handle all of the felony prosecutions um, on the state side for the uh, for the county. And we have one misdemeanor prosecutor who handles all of the um, prostitution cases uh, around the county, whether they're the supply side or demand side um, of the problem as well.
1: Can you, can you kind of clarify for the listeners the supply side and the demand side from the pr- prosecutor's perspective?
2: Sure. Uh, one of the things that we... Uh, take a serious view of is the fact that uh, human trafficking is a demand driven problem, right? If there, It's just like any other economic problem. If you don't have buyers that are willing to pay a premium for a certain product, and I hate to use the term product in this context, but that's what they view um you know, society refers to them as prostitutes or worse, but from the demand side, they view it as a product and they want a particular sex product. They're willing to pay a premium for a particular person, particular type of person, or a particular type of sex act. And so because the demand is in Orange County, pimps and human traffickers will bring their product to market. They'll they'll bring their victims to Orange County so that they can sell them on the open market the way anybody would any type of good or service.
0: You know, I don't really want to know the answer to the question I'm going to ask because that's kind of been the case for a lot of the questions I've asked during this series. But can you help me dissect and understand just what you said and how that happens?
2: Sure. Um, You have different parts of the county which are prolific for what's known as street-based prostitution, where people would drive up and down a particular street. They'll see somebody out on the street who's, um, for lack of a better term, selling herself, they'll pull over and they'll negotiate for a particular sex act for a particular price she'll get in a car and they'll drive somewhere and the act will be consummated Um, by and large uh, the vast majority of street walking prostitution is controlled by pimps and human traffickers so once the what's referred to as the date is done um, she'll either hold on to the money from a couple of dates or three or four dates and then she'll meet up with her pimp or trafficker and then all of the money gets turned over to the to that person What we're finding in Orange County is the vast majority of our victims come from out-of-county. They come from different parts of the state or they come from around the country. Um, And again, the reason why Orange County is really a destination county for human trafficking is because we have a large population of individuals that have disposable income, and frankly, they're willing to pay more in Orange County than uh, perhaps other parts of the state.
0: Is it also exacerbated by the fact that we have an awful lot of hotel rooms and travelers that come to this area too?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The example I gave was for your street-based prostitution, but um, you know, it's funny. A lot of jurisdictions. We go. One of the things that we do in addition to prosecute is we go around and we train. We train law enforcement. We train other prosecutors, and sometimes there's some resistance. And what people will say is, well, in our county or in our city, we don't really have a human trafficking problem. And we always just ask them, well, do you have a hotel room? Because if you have a hotel room, you have a human trafficking problem. Um, I would say more prostitution happens, more pimping and human trafficking happens in hotel rooms via the internet. So they'll post uh, advertisements on internet websites. Uh, sex, purchasers, sex purchasers will go out find the advertisements. They'll negotiate Something with uh their victim or with the pimp directly unbeknownst to the to the purchaser the the pimp might actually be the one who's sitting there texting him, telling him where to show up and how much it's going to cost and for what sex act um, and I know that our purchasers generally don't have a vision <laughs> they usually have a vision of the girl in the advertisement they don't have the vision of some dude sitting there texting uh when they're communicating with them uh and then they'll go into a motel room and they'll uh they'll exchange money for sex and that happens all over the county.
0: Okay, so I'm sitting here reflecting a little bit about the past week and some of the things I've learned, but it's really important probably that we convey to the listener that we're not just talking about prostitution in the classical sense where we have a willing participant that's engaged in in her mind in a business that she's chosen willfully. So we're talking a lot right now about prostitution, more so than we have during our series. And I'm I'm fascinated, has the language changed a little bit in your office on how you address people? I know you referred to uh, the woman as a victim, but we need to clarify that because there's a lot of people that I think turn a blind eye to this issue because they think people are doing this by choice, or the women if in this case.
2: Sure. Um I don't want to say it's a it's a change in terminology um for the sake of changing terminology, right I think what really drove it was our the ability that we had to learn of a problem from a different angle right um, We had more exposure to uh, uh young women who were engaging in acts of prostitution to understand well what got them there right if you're if you're a young woman from Fresno or from Oakland or from Las Vegas or you know. Dearborn or any other place in the country, what brought you to Orange County? And a lot of times we learn that some of our victims don't even know that they're in Orange County. They're at a place where somebody took them because they're nothing more than product to be sold at market. And um, and that was intriguing to us. Another thing that was intriguing to us is, well, you know, and, and these are things that I've heard from other victims, right, or, 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 or women who have been able to get out of the life and they reflect back. Well, what five-year-old girl, when you ask her, what do you want to be when you grow up, says, well, I want to be a prostitute. They don't say that because that's not what young women want to be, right? And so we started to try to understand, well, what made that person susceptible to getting into the life of prostitution in the first place? And um, and then, you know, what factors in her life were the things that made them susceptible? And then who was the individual or group of individuals who actually introduced them to the life and then, and then made this what they believed they're supposed to be in life?
1: So, Dan, um, I really want people to understand— that we've moved way beyond we only see as victims those who are minors. But we have to recognize they were probably lured into this um, through fraud or coercion. And so when they turn 18, uh, they don't say, okay, I'm I'm an adult now. I'm going to walk away from this. And I think one of the most impressive things about Orange County's approach to this through your office and your leadership and Brad and Brian that are other prosecutors in heat is the fact that we have a steadily increasing rate of successful prosecutions of uh, perpetrators who have victimized um, adults. So we're growing our empathy for the victim beyond just the soft little young little kitten kind of image. Right. Can you speak to
2: that? Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. Um, I think when you're talking about a child victim, somebody who's located and identified by law enforcement while they're still a juvenile, I think that's easier for everybody to wrap their heads around and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we can clearly see that, that she's been uh, induced to do something that she really shouldn't be doing and that she lawfully can't even consent to doing. Um, when you have a 25 or a 30-year-old young woman who's doing the same thing, I think it's easier for people to come to the conclusion that she's out there like you're saying because, well, she wants to be out there, and so she's made a choice. And we all come from a place, especially in Orange County, where we believe in personal choice and personal freedoms, and we assume that people have the choice to do things that um, that they're doing. Um, what we've learned over the last few years is, is that A lot of times that young woman who may be 25 or 30 today when she's contacted by law enforcement she really got into the life when she was 13 or 14 or 15 and so the question that we always wanted to come to is what caused that person to get in and stay in what's known as the life for 10 years um, not reach out to law enforcement not try to avail herself of help Um, what was it that happened and um, our learning about the and again, we're painting with broad brushes here because obviously what's true in one case or what's true in a majority of cases isn't true in every single case. Um, but we've learned that the vast majority of victims who get into the life have gotten in at those sort of young teenage years of between 13, 14, and 15 years old. Uh, we've learned a lot about the backgrounds that they tend to come from that make them susceptible. Um, and and understanding that that's where they come from has has caused us to... Uh, try to work with them in a different light, try to help them get, um, instead of going through the revolving door process of charging them with a misdemeanor offense and having them show up in court and get a slap on the wrist, we've tried to um, help connect them with the resources that can uh, help them more long-term.
0: So you've really changed your approach then, haven't you? I mean, I think if you're looking at an adult woman and seeing her more as that child victim that was maybe, if you could, if it's not too strong language, say kidnapped 10 years ago into this life.
2: Um, I think kidnapped is probably putting it too strong because I think we get an image in our mind of what kidnapping means, right? But the thing about human trafficking is... Um, I don't really like to talk too much in cliches but I'm going to use a couple that I think are maybe appropriate but it's oftentimes referred to as enslavement of the mind right and um, and I'm not going to give a whole lesson you know on the air about how to enslave somebody's mind but but um, but I think it's sufficient just to note that if if you're if you're a pimp and you're good at identifying somebody who might be susceptible to whatever game that you're going to you're going to pitch towards that individual, right? That's you've already got half the battle. If you can identify what type of target is going to be particularly vulnerable, right? that's, that's at least half the battle, right? And then the idea is well, okay, now that I've identified a, an advantageous target, well what what am I going to do to try to um, get that person to come into the fold and become reliant on me and dependent on, p- on me for everything, whether it's um, your basic physical needs like shelter, like uh, food, Um, and then the basic emotional needs that that individual probably never got from anyone else in her life, right? So if if a pimp can take a 14 or a 15 or a 16-year-old girl who needs those things because she doesn't have it in whatever life circumstance she's in over here, then he's going to be able to provide that for her and she becomes reliant. And all through the process, a successful pimp is going to brainwash her to believe that He's the only person that loves her. He's the only person that she can rely on. He's the only person that is going to keep her safe. And anybody else that she may come in contact with in life, especially law enforcement, are people that are just trying to get in the way of that one relationship that in her mind is productive.
0: And her primary relationship, right? Correct. Hmm. Okay, well, that, that was one of the more interesting things you brought up, Dr. Morgan, early on in our series, is that they actually go to seminars and study how to be professional at their own business here, and that they are studying um, the hierarchy of needs and, you know, really interesting psychological texts to, uh, to help control the minds of their young victims.
1: Which, which is why I really agree with Dan about not using kidnap. Um, terminology, because then we have this sense that, well, if we are guarding and and keeping watch, we're going to be able to identify someone grabbing a kid, and that's that's not going to be using our prevention resources well, because what we really have to be looking out for is to be equally vigilant like the pimp or trafficker is, to identify at-risk, marginalized kids who are more vulnerable and provide those physical and emotional needs so that they aren't so vulnerable to being recruited.
0: So you're really working towards training the public, and that's why it's so important that we do a series like this, on how to look for those markers. so I, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected about that because that's important. I, I want to direct the conversation a little bit to what you mentioned earlier as the supply side. I'm sorry, the demand side because we've, we've been talking a lot about the supply side. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the demand side and what your work is involved with um, helping stem that
2: tide because that's a big one. Um. Well, I'll give you I'll give you an unfortunate answer, but it all depends, right? It it really depends on the particular circumstances that somebody's involved in. Um, anybody who's involved in a particular uh, crime is held accountable um, if they should be held accountable and liable for that crime. Um, so our unit still does prosecute, and we have one individual who's assigned to handle all of those cases on the misdemeanor side. Um, any case involving um, a purchaser who is uh, loitering with the intent to commit prostitution, because if you're paying money for a sex act, then you're you're guilty of the same crime as somebody who's receiving money to perform a sex act. Um, so our office has uh, a mechanism in place where anybody who's convicted um, on the demand side of soliciting prostitution, um, upon conviction, then they're uh, they're made public. They're on the public website, they're on the DA's website, and we have a, a sex purchaser page. Um, on the supply side, if somebody's loitering with intent to commit prostitution or she does in fact agree to commit acts of prostitution, um, she can be arrested for prostitution and then we review it for a possible filing. One of the things that we try to make sure that we're looking at is, is this an individual who was arrested but she may still be a victim? And if we believe that that person's a victim, then we don't prosecute them, um, even if we think that, you know, and, and it's not something that we do to say, okay, well, we only won't prosecute her if looking at it, it looks like um, she has a pimp and she's willing to cooperate. We we look at it and we assess whether we believe she's a victim. And if we believe they're a victim, then we don't prosecute them. That's, um, that's the important part about having everything handled within the same unit so that we can Uh, try to assess each case individually and then we also look at them to see well is there something that we need to do to follow up right can we connect her with the proper resources can we um, can we potentially identify somebody who was uh, exploiting that individual
1: so when you were talking about um, prosecuting the pimps and traffickers I I think I remember back when um, a, a reporter called me about a case you you were the lead prosecutor on because people couldn't believe how much money the pimp was making from um, trafficking, and so can you talk about that a little bit for so people understand why using language like product is is the reality. So we understand their mindset when they set up business in Orange County.
2: Sure, I I think I saw a statistic a couple of years ago. FBI estimates that. Um, that any particular pimp may have between two and five young women in their stable at any time. A so stable is the term that's used to refer to the group of girls that any particular pimp has. And we've seen a lot of them will set daily quotas, um, the targets for each victim to earn every single day. and And by the way, when I say quotas, now every pimp has a different game. They have different sets of rules. Um, there are some that that are common. Throughout, right? It's called the game for a reason, right? It's not like one person just made it up and he does what he does over here and then somebody else made up their own game somewhere else. When we talk about the game, if you look at certain uh, lyrics in, in music, in popular culture, if you look at certain books um, like Sandy was talking about, or if you look at um, the certain how to's or how to be a pimp, they refer to it as the game and or the life. And there are rules of the game. And one of them is quotas. And if, again, depending on the pimp, they might have punishments for not even earning your quota. It could be deprivation of food. It could be a beating. It could be being placed in an ice bath. Um, it could be anything. It could just be degradation, right? That's that's a big one. A lot of pimps will use degrading uh, terms because, again, if we talk about the model we talked about before, about the things that that victim needs, right, the needing the, the, the need to be with somebody who cares for them and respects them or shows them um, or gives them some emotional structure that they may not have elsewhere, then the degradation becomes a really key component to um, motivating her to earn the quota, right? So she can earn that respect, she'll earn the quota. So we've seen quotas as low as $200 or $300 a day, but more typically we'll see it at $500 a day or $1,000 a day. I think we've even seen it as high as $1,500. But really in Orange County, It wouldn't surprise me to see a case with $500 to $1,000. And that's uh, per day, per girl. So if you've got three or four or five girls in your stable, you're multiplying that out by factors of three or four or five. Um, And most often that's going to be seven days a week, not five days a week, and that's going to be 30 or 31 days a month. There's no time off for menstrual cycles. There's no time off for weekends. Um, And, again, I'm giving you general rules. Sure, there are some pimps who will give a day off. There are some guys that won't make them work while they're menstruating, but they're, um But if we're talking about the typical rules of the game, you're gonna make you're gonna sell your product every single day.
0: And about how many clients a day is that?
2: Um, it really just depends. I don't. I don't really want to. I don't wanna really want to do that to sensationalize, right? Because a lot of the times we try not to focus on that with our victims when we talk to them. We don't want to sensationalize. Well, oh that means that that you slept with six guys today or something like that because the focus really isn't on that the focus that's just the end game for the pimp and that's what his focus is on our focus is on the relationship and how it is that she became vulnerable and what he did to use those vulnerabilities against her for his own financial gain and so you know i'll let everybody else do the math you know what i mean um but those are the dollar quotas, and, and, and that's what the pimp cares about. He doesn't care how many dates she does. He cares how many dollars she can earn. So,
1: Okay, so one of the things that I'm always amazed at is how um, unwilling many of the victims are to testify against the trafficker. Because I'm like, if somebody does wrong to me, I'm going to go and tell somebody. What? How does that complicate your goals?
2: I think it, it takes time. I mean, that's not really the, f- the focus in, in up front, right? The focus up front is what admissible evidence do we have to prove that he was doing what we believe he was doing and, and with the admissible evidence, do we believe in good faith that we can prove it to 12 members of the community? The, f- the focus isn't always on, well, what does she say at the moment she's contacted? and is, is, Am I going to get her into court next week? Right? Because we come out and presume That if she's been doing what she's been doing for the amount of time that she's been doing it and giving all of the financial benefit to another person, we presume that she's probably not going to like us very much up front. And, you know, I've had my share of victims use very choice language with me, (laughs) which I won't use on the air. But um, uh, because this is a different process, right? What they've been and again, I'm using large generalizations, but what, what victims by and large have been conditioned to believe is that law enforcement doesn't care about their well-being, they're more likely to be placed in handcuffs in the back of a patrol car than into uh, a room with a couch in a soft interview environment with somebody asking them if they want to talk to a victim advocate and uh, and not attaching strings to everything that they do. Right, Their entire existence up until the point that we contact them is, has some string attached, and for them it's always been money, right? And there's other factors too, there's respect, what's known as respect on the street, right? Um, following the rules that, that, um, that the pimp lays out for them. And so what we try to do up front is not focus on the testimony aspect of what may come down the pike, um, it's really focus on the victim's immediate needs, and, um, and really make sure that we're doing something that they never expected us to do, which is make them human again.
0: So interesting. I am pleased to be joined today with Dan Varon. He is the deputy district attorney in the um, the of Orange County in the office of uh, human exploitation. And trafficking, and I noticed you called that heat early on, so that's kind of a cool name. Um, Where he is busy prosecuting pimping, pandering, and human trafficking, and also with Dr. Sandra Morgan, the executive director for the Global Center for Women and Justice, and she has helped me craft this four part series here. Um, on human trafficking at Real People OC and I am your host Kimberly Martin and you're listening to 88.9 FM in Irvine that's KUCI you can uh, listen to the podcast of the previous um, shows that we've done it is a little tricky here at KUCI I will point that out It seems to be a bit of a browser war. So if you want to go and look at those podcasts, use Internet Explorer. I think a couple of the other ones don't work on our website for some reason. That's KUCI.org, and you can go to archives. Click on my show, Real People OC, and you can listen to podcasts. Um, I want to ask you, Dan Barron, how do you measure success in your office? Because it sounds like there's a tsunami of things coming your way and maybe not a lot of hopeful outcomes in each case that you touch. Can you talk to us about that?
2: Sure. I, I think personally, um, and I think this would be, you know, I've never asked this question to my colleagues, Brad and Brian. Um, so I'll just answer it from a personal level. I think we, we try to measure success on a case-by-case basis, right? Um, every case is unique. Every victim is unique. Every defendant is unique. Their backgrounds are unique. Um, and so we measure it on a, on a sort of a two-fold process. The first process is looking at the victim. Were we successful at Um, at a minimum, planting a seed with a victim so she understands that law enforcement is different um, than really, frankly, what it used to be five years ago, right? Um, Does she understand that there are ways that she can avail herself of help if she wants to get out of the life? I think a lot of young women are not sure about us. They're not sure about cops. They're not sure about how to get out of the life. That prospect is very scary because there's only, that's what they know, Right. And especially if they got in when they're 15 or 16 or 14, this is the life that they know. And to, you know, for any of us to move from one facet of life to another is a scary thing for somebody to move from a situation where this is what they believe they are um, into an unknown uh, is very scary. So if we can succeed in planting that seed and having some connection where somebody can feel that they're humanized, then I think that that was successful. Obviously, my job is to prosecute people for felonies for pimping, pandering, and human trafficking, which I think are heinous crimes. I think they're heinous. They rob people of their innocence. They rob people of their, um, of their sense of self-worth. And they rob people's outlooks for the reason that we just talked about when we talked about victims' difficulties in seeing beyond the life, right? So on that front, we measure success by successful felony convictions and um, making sure that somebody gets what we think that particular case is worth. Okay, so a certain That's a long answer. Sentence. I know, but I'm a no, lawyer. No, it's actually good. You did, you did very well. You so did. what's your conviction rate in Orange County as a team? Um, I think as a team, we've, uh, I think we've, we've got about 100 or hundred maybe between 100 and 104 convictions, felony convictions, related to pimping, pandering, or human trafficking. Um, I think we've dismissed four or five cases for various reasons
0: is that per year or what is what do you mean That's by, what are we measuring against time since
2: april of 2013 when the unit officially started okay
0: and how many how many are coming your way though
2: that you um, total between the three of us i think we've got about um, roughly 70 65 or 70 active felony prosecutions pending
0: so is that are you able to prosecute 100% of the ones that come your way 30% or oh. what is what's what's happening in that Arena. Oh, okay, is the so, law on your side yet?
2: <laughs> the law is on our side. I, I think I feel pretty confident that the law is on our side. Prop thirty-five passed in November of two thousand twelve. Uh, that changed the specter for us. It changed. Um, it, I think that was a real reflection of the view that people uh, are having towards human trafficking. Um,
0: Reflect on that proposition for us for a moment.
2: Prop thirty-five. Well, just to give you a couple of highlights. Um, on November sixth of two thousand twelve, if you were convicted of human trafficking of an adult it was, uh, you could get a whopping three, four, or five years in state prison. Now you can get eight, 14, or 20 years in state prison. So if you traffic a juvenile in 2012, right, on November 6th, you could have gotten four, six, or eight years in state prison. Now, today for the exact same charge, which which has some component of depriving somebody's liberty, um, with a juvenile, you can get 15 to life. So it's a completely different uh, view towards the offense.
0: Do you feel like people have left the business because of that, just too risky, or do you think they've just deepened their resources and gotten more, more, <laughs> you know, <laughs> under the radar?
2: It's a great question. I can't answer it. <laughs> I have no idea. And, and, you know, one of the challenges, and I always worry about this, is, you know, Prop 35 kind of tracks societal awareness to human trafficking, right? I don't think, uh, if I look back, I don't think human trafficking was even a crime in California. It wasn't codified, I don't think, until about 2006 or 2008. Two thousand six. So, so that's when two thirty six point one was enacted uh, of the penal code. Um, so, obviously, before in two thousand five, you couldn't stat human trafficking prosecutions because they wouldn't have existed under that section, right? So, then two thirty six point one becomes a crime in uh, two thousand and six, and then the penalties increased dramatically in two thousand and twelve, and that tracks societal awareness and human trafficking task forces popping up around the state and you know, prosecutors looking at it from a different vantage point and law enforcement looking at it from a different vantage point. So, I would venture to say, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would venture to say that from 2012 until now, we have a dramatic increase in human trafficking prosecutions in Orange County. But I don't know that that necessarily means that there's more human trafficking happening, it just means that we know where to look for it and we know how to prosecute it. We've
1: improved our um, effectiveness, but one of my problems with the Case Act, with Prop 35, is that now we are putting the pimps away, and and I've been told that um, there are wannabe pimps that are ready to step into their shoes at any moment. So uh, we are doing a little bit of a good job on on ending the business. Or, as uh, Sergeant Juan Ravelis told us, keeping the pimps out of Orange County because the risk of getting prosecuted is much higher. So it's a deterrent, but not necessarily. um, It doesn't necessarily end it. And one of the aspects that I'm concerned about is we had we had a lot of funding directed at the prosecution and the investigation, and very little in that that is being provided for the victims and in last week talking to um, Judge Maria Hernandez we still don't have resources for placement for safe secure placement so I kinda thought it would be interesting to hear from your perspective on how important um, a, a really good placement is to the success of of um, treating her as a victim and to your prosecution if if you're if you're planning on having testimony, and we know that so many leave the, the safe but not secure um, housing that we offer.
2: It's vital. It's, it's vital. And again, I, I'm not even focusing on it from a prosecution standpoint. Mm-hmm. I'm focusing it from a human standpoint, right? If you have a 14 or a 15 or a 16-year-old kid, and you've just removed her from an unsafe environment, and because she's unsure about everything that's been placed around her, you place her in an unsecure environment, her reaction may very well be to run, because she doesn't know any different, and this is new, and we don't have a way to stabilize her. Um, so it's a, it's a huge challenge, and, and um, it's one that, unfortunately,
1: I don't have the answer to. I don't have the answer either, but I'm hoping that some of the law students here at UCI are thinking about legislation as they begin to become public advocates.
0: Yes, because that was something we've identified. But um, what are but we could speak to what are some of the immediate protections a victim is offered right when they enter the system, or is there some that, that we can link to so they can understand what might happen if anybody's listening?
2: Um, our We work directly with uh, Community Service Program, CSP. They are, The Human Trafficking Task Force is made up of a variety of uh, governmental and non-governmental organizations um, but it's, it's administered through CSP and ser- they're sort of the lead organization on the human trafficking task force with the law enforcement component, um, that's being headed by Sergeant Rivellis that, um, Sandy talked about from Anaheim police department. And there's a variety of contributing agencies that work on the law enforcement side of it, such as, uh, Irvine police department, uh, California highway patrol, the sheriff's department, uh, the district attorney's office has an investigator assigned Santa Ana, uh, just recently assigned a detective there. Um. Oh, boy, I hope I'm not missing anybody. Did I get them all? Irvine? <laughs> I got Irvine. Okay. I got okay. Irvine. <laughs> um, and the sheriff. And I got the sheriff. Um, and then we're the prosecution entity that's that's assigned there as well. Um so the resources really run through CSP, and they partner also with Salvation Army. They partner with a variety of other nonprofits, and I know if I start listing as I have, I'm going to miss people, and that's terrible. But
0: That's okay. Even if you just listed a few, that would be helpful. Right.
2: So, well, th- so those are the ones, and so CSP provides a lot of the victim services. So the way it works is once a victim is identified, um, CSP will work with that individual and try to assess their individual needs. Sometimes that means that they're returned to their home county and um, they try to find safe placement in their home county. Sometimes it means they have to help them with cell phones or food or uh, emergency shelter or again, you know, there's no uh, one size fits all for our victim set. Everybody comes from different places and more important than where they come from is where they're at uh, at the time that they're contacted. And I just mean that sort of physically, emotionally, sort of what they're ready to handle.
1: One of the things uh, to answer for your listeners, Kimberly, if they know someone that they suspect might be um, under the coercive... Uh, influence of a pimp, uh, and that includes, I have friends now, they're my friends, they're survivors, who were recruited when they were college students. And so, um, because sometimes it is hard for them to figure out the system in the county, there is a hotline number that you can call. It is 888-3737-888, and it will get back to community service programs here and our law enforcement. But a lot of times, this this group of, of um, people are more inclined to send a text than to make a phone call if it's self-reporting. And so the text number is 233 and someone will respond to you and give you some um, a, a referral for some help, and that's be free. you can text be free, 233,733 if you think you or one of your friends might actually be in a potentially um, exploitative situation.
0: Okay, very good. If uh, you're just tuning in, this is Kimberly Martin, and I'm your host of Real People OC. We are here at 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's KUCI. And if you're interested in today's show and the many others that we had in this series so far, in the month of January, we are studying a little bit about human trafficking, and today we have with us Dr. Sandra Morgan, Executive Director for the Global Center of Women for Women and Justice at a Vanguard University, and she has helped me craft this Very interesting and intriguing discussion on human trafficking, Um, how successful we've been here in Orange County and some of the innovative things that we've been doing. And today we have with us Dan Varen. He is the Orange County Deputy District Attorney, and he is within the unit of Human Exploitation and Trafficking and the Air Prosecuting, Pimping, Pandering, and Human Trafficking. Those are big words. Um, I got him out quickly that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, well, tell me what we've missed. What else does the public need to know about the work that you're doing, and how can we help you?
2: I think, well... There, there's a lot I think Sandy gave a lot of great advice before uh, a few moments ago but um, I think awareness is number one you know to the degree that people want to get involved or give money to organizations that help human trafficking victims we talked about the needs that our victims have it could you know it could be anything it could be clothing it could be food it could be shelter um, those are those are the immediate needs that our victims need um, awareness is a huge part of it um, I think that we've done a lot to um, try to spread the word about what human trafficking really is. Um, When people see somebody out on a street or they see an internet advertisement or whatever, I think it's important for people to understand not to just throw labels out, oh, that's a prostitute or something. Um, As one uh, young woman told me once, I never forgot it, she said, we always smile because we were trained to smile. We knew that if we didn't smile, it was a beating. So you know, don't assume that somebody is where they are because they want to be there, right? Sometimes we have to dig a little deeper. Um, and a big part for me of uh, public awareness is understanding the things that maybe have unintended consequences. Right, we um, we do a lot in in popular culture or in the media to glorify certain lifestyles that maybe don't need to be so glorified. It maybe we need to understand. Um, what they are a bit better.
0: Okay, let's speak to that a little bit, because when you walked into our studio here at KUCI, you went right to some of our record labels. We have a beautiful collection of vinyl here in KCI, and I thought maybe you were just a music enthusiast. But you pulled a couple of the albums, and you started looking at the titles and um, pulling the lyrics up online to see if you could see. where You know, we're, it, we're kind of infusing this acceptance of pimping and pandering. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh,
2: sure. You know, and I, I'm not a huge music enthusiast, and, you know, but I, I've learned a bit through uh, through my assignment. And you, you hear certain songs have titles like P-I-M-P. Well, <laughs> what's that glorifying? What are we teaching? Uh, you know, I think that's a song by 50 Cent. You know, what, what are we teaching our kids, um, whether they're young boys or young girls, what are we teaching them about the value of women? What are we teaching them about the value of money? Um, and and acceptable ways to try to get money um, you know uh, Big Pimpin' is another one by Jay-Z which again I'm not saying anything about anybody's lifestyle because I know that people sing about things that they don't necessarily partake in or even condone or maybe they're just not thinking about it but think about the effect that that has on the listener think about you know and, and I'm not one for controlling what people listen to I'm, you know we can all do what we want and be grown-ups and adult but But I think the adults in the room sometimes need to know what their kids are listening to so they can put it in the right context, if there can be a right context. (laughs) I'm not sure there always can be, but that's a discussion for another day, I guess.
0: (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. What about you, Dr. Morgan? Do you want to make some comments about that?
1: I do believe that long-term demand is going to be reduced, not through just the coercive use of the law to deter people, I think that we do have to change culture. I really appreciated one of the remarks that Sergeant Ravellis made. If you didn't hear him, um, Kimberly just told us how to go back and access uh, the previous shows. But he talked about the link between pornography and driving demand for commercial sexual exploitation. And I think that is an area we have to address a lot more attention to um, in our schools and um, young um, young adult programs, uh, after-school programs, and one of the most disturbing new facts that's rising, it, depending on whose statistics you're reading, the number of girls who click on pornography starting in their early teens goes somewhere between 22 and 35% of
2: online clicks. I think that's a great point. I mean, when you think about it, and I guess I have to tell Juan I said that, <laughs> uh, Ravellis, but... Um, we live in a society where Playboy just went non-nude, right? Now think about that for a second. Playboy just went non-nude. They were the driver of nudity, what, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they went non-nude because it's so because pornography is so rampant, uh, rampant and prolific. And, and it, right, it's just out there. And it's not just nudity. It's, it's graphic, graphic nudity, sex acts that are, everything is prolific. And so if, if you combine that, with the vulnerability traits, the easy access to that sort of information, and then you combine it with sort of a a an acceptance among society for the use of certain terms and lyrics. I mean, you, to to call a woman the b-word uh, in popular culture doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Right. But if I were to use it at home, I'd get a beating probably, right? Right. right. And rightly so. I hope so no, I'm just right. <laughs> Not advocating
0: violence. Here right. In case, yeah. But
2: but. <laughs> You know, those are things that that's sort of the confluence of where popular culture has brought us right now. And I think it I think those factors make it easier for somebody who wants to exploit somebody to recruit them.
1: So does that impact a court trial because it's more normalized when you have 12 people sitting there and and the judge and and you're presenting your case and you're trying to paint this uh, this person as a victim? Uh. Do you face resistance to that because of the normalization in culture?
2: You know, I think that's always a risk. I think our job in court is to try to educate the jury um, to the particular situations um, that are unique to a particular type of case. and Sometimes we have to get into and understand the backgrounds and and the cultural components. Um, We haven't seen that yet as being an issue with jurors, um, but it's always a concern.
0: Well, we are drawing down on our time with you, Dan Varon, the Orange County Deputy District Attorney. Um, any final thoughts before we go today?
2: No, I, I just want to, again, thank you for the opportunity to speak about it. Obviously, you can tell it's an important topic. Uh, to me personally, it's important uh, in our society, and I, and I appreciate the opportunity to help raise public awareness.
1: And I appreciate you a lot, too, Dan, because I know that you put in a lot more than your 40 hours a week, that this is, this is a personal commitment just as much as your job, and you are greatly appreciated. Thank you.
0: He probably laughs so much because 40 is like maybe, you know, a third of what he actually does for his job, oh, right? Yeah. uh uh-huh. right. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break.